electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and figure all this stuff out. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. The Fed may finally be almost finished raising interest rates but not for the reasons we wanted. Instead of cooling inflation, we got a bank run with the promise of more if the Fed doesn't stop being so aggressive and start worrying more about bank shutdowns and seizures. These are certainly deflationary issues, and the market reacted like J-Pal may have to be more circumspect next week. While the Dow ultimately closed down 91 points due to a late-day downdraft, S&P lost 0.15%, but the Nasdaq still jumped 0.45%, which is what you'd expect in an environment where we're less worried about rate hikes. Yet, it took a fistful of bank failures and no doubt a few bank failures more to cause short-term interest rates to plummet, suggesting that the bond market believes the Fed's almost done or might even finish beef actually finished with tightenings. If that's true, it's ridiculously bullish, which is why we could rally so hard early in the session, even as most of those gains evaporated by the close, because that's a mighty big if, and the regional bank stocks just never stop falling, casting a pole in the entire market. At the end of the day, it's hard for the averages to rally when First Republic's down 62%, Western Alliance is down 47%, Comerica and Keycorp, wow, 28 and 27%, Zion's down 26%, PacWest down 21%, and First Horizon, which was supposed to be purchased not that long ago, off 20%. These actions in the stocks of the regional banks took my breath away. Some of these are stored, even stayed. And they're saying that we aren't through this mess, and it is very worrisome that they couldn't find their footing, even after the Fed unveiled last night's bazooka. Now, the Wall Street Journal is reporting this very evening, and after failing to find a buyer for Silicon Valley Bank this weekend, Oh, no, the regular is going to try again, a second auction. If this one's successful, then I think the cascading regional banks will bottom. But if it falls, that's just more fuel to the flames, and these will all be lower. Now, I hope they are offering lost guarantees, or else I can't see how anyone steps up to buy Silicon Valley Bank. Yep, the collapse of SVB last week and its aftermath gave us two markets, there's the market that's still potentially vulnerable, the banks, and then there's everything else, although the, the else wasn't <laughs> equally dispersed. 
So let's do this. Let's go over what's happening here to get a better sense of where we might be soon. First, last night the Fed gave regional banks that, uh, that have lost money on their bond portfolios really a chance to play again. A chance to borrow against those bonds still valued at par. Wow, that would be terrific. Uh, they're going to value them like they are at par, but they're much lower. See, these banks are in trouble because the Fed raised rates so aggressively, which is why Powell's giving them an out. Banks that took extra yield risk, meaning buying 20 or 30 year bonds to make a little extra money, shouldn't be wiped out by that decision alone. They didn't buy junk. It's just not fair to crush them after the Fed itself caused their portfolios to generate losses. Silicon Valley Bank, though, that's a little different. See, they took on that long-term risk. I wish they had, and it was ill-advised. But more importantly, they also had a highly concentrated deposit base that was ready to flee at the first sign of trouble. It didn't matter that the bank had cultivated these venture capitalist clients for years. They got out so fast that SVB didn't even have time to do a capital raise to make up for their bond losses. On a lesser note, the government also closed Signature Bank, again because of a fear of pullouts, as well as the fear that it might be like Silvergate, another crypto-oriented bank, that was shut down just last week. Yet for most of the day, it felt like Wall Street was breathing a sigh of relief. Even a a whole slug of banks appeared to be in trouble. Part of that's because the Fed expressed a commitment to keeping as many regional banks in business as they can. Now, we don't want to be like other countries where only a few major banks control the entire market. We like consumer banks. We like regional banks. That's part of our country's imperative. Second, pending tomorrow's consumer price index number, it's natural to assume the Fed might at least wait before it puts through another rate hike. Or maybe they'll hit us with a quarter point hike next week and then say it's it for a while. We got to get away from that debate, though, soon. And I think the action earlier today was correct before the pullback into the close. Why am I not more concerned about these bank runs, especially when First Republic, another regional bank with a suboptimal bond portfolio and a very mobile deposit base, saw its stock plummet nearly 62 percent today? Look, the answer is I am very concerned. I would like to be constructive about that world, but I am very concerned. I can think of a number of banks that may not need to raise capital to offset their bond losses, although they don't have to do it all at once. And I can think of a lot of them that need to raise capital. See, I'm cognizant that other banks can fail. I just think we have an alert Federal Reserve that doesn't want everyone moving the deposits to J.P. Morgan. By the way, that is exactly what will happen if they aren't careful. That's another imperative we don't want. We don't want just J.P. Morgan being the only bank. But I'm also aware that many stocks have been in bear market mode for ages. Every time they start to rally, the Fed says or does something that knocks them back down. So if you believe there'll be a stay of execution on the Fed's rate hikes because they're finally getting major disinflation in the form of these bank failures, you should be pretty sanguine about the overall stock market. Just a week ago, the conventional wisdom said that the Fed would tighten by 50 basis points at its next meeting. Now the chatter says 25 basis points are nothing lest they cause more bank failures, and they definitely don't want to cause more bank failures. Not only did long-term interest rates go down, the dollar also went lower. Another real positive for much of the stock market, especially the big multinationals. Now, let's put it all together. Even after the late afternoon pullback, the winners today were the multinational consumer product companies. I want you to think about companies like Procter & Gamble and J&J, two charitable trust names that remain way down from their highs that we talked about at both our morning meeting and our home stretch. Drug companies in particular should do well because Failing banks are inherently deflationary, and they do better with a weaker dollar and more of a recessionary outlook. 
Oddly, buyers rushed into tech, too. I think that's just thoughtless buying driven by machines. You've got a lot of algorithms that buy tech whenever bond yields go down because inflation tends to be bad for tech. But because this is done by computers, they can't ask themselves, hey, maybe the demise of Silicon Valley banks signals something negative about their industry. Remember, SVB catered to companies that haven't come public yet and the principles behind them. The bank even lent against shares of privately held startups and applications in anticipation of their IPO proceeds. That's something very few financials will do because it is so risky. But you need to know, First Republic does do the same thing, which is one of the reasons why its stock got killed today. Of course, the kind of tech stocks that roared today have no need for credit and thrive on growth alone. Apple and Microsoft have the greatest balance sheets of almost any company in the world, and they were both up nicely. We do know these tech stocks get hurt when the Fed raises interest rates. That's the story of last year. So it's reasonable to believe that they deserve to rally if the Fed is going to stop tightening. We always say don't fight the Fed around here. If it's true that they'll get less hawkish, you're no longer fighting the Fed. Smaller techs, though, like, say, a GitLabs, which reported this very evening, still one more loss-making enterprise software company, reported a terrible set of numbers, and it is getting crushed. Those kinds of companies I am begging you to continue to avoid. Ultimately, I'm not oblivious to what awaits us with the banks. We saw so many regional banks get crushed today, along with Schwab, the broker, and even Citigroup, a major international bank. I'm not getting into the game of whack-a-mole, but I fear some of these banks won't be savvy enough to take advantage of what the Fed's offering them because they don't want to hurt their own stocks. Guess what? You have. It is vital that the regional banks don't break ranks. They need to get whatever relief they can so they can fulfill their roles as lenders to local markets, small to medium-sized business people. If they don't, then more bank failures on top of all these rate hikes could push us into recession. We sure don't want to use taxpayer money to save them. Right now, that's unnecessary as long as they're willing to work with the Fed. And that's what happened behind the scenes today. Lots of negotiations. But the bottom line, if the Fed had done nothing, if they'd been worried about moral hazard, like the possibility of Bitcoin going higher, which it did, or that rich people would do better, as they will now that SVB's depositors will be insured beyond the 250,000 FDIC limit, then we might have been looking at a full-blown recession, maybe even by the end of the week. In short, we dodged a major bullet. But there might be more coming if we don't stop the run in the regional bank stocks. Let's speak to Matthew in Texas. Matthew. Hey, Jim. I'm wondering, with continued distrust in our banking system and the Federal Reserve, does this strengthen the investment case for Bitcoin? No. Uh, Bitcoin went up today, and I could argue that now it can't even be uh, held in banks. Bitcoin's a strange animal. I-, I will say point blank, I think it's being manipulated up. It's very, it was being manipulated the whole time by Sam Bankman-Fried. So please don't make me, please don't assume, therefore, that it's not still being manipulated. And I would sell my Bitcoin right into this rally. And believe me, I had been a believer one time in Bitcoin. Not here, not now. Gary in New York, Gary. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I'd like to get your opinion on New York Community Bank Corp. Uh, small size regional pays a dividend around 10%. Um, just don't seem to be associated with SVB in any way. Just wondering if their recent stock performance is simply a case of industry association. Oh. Um, thanks. Well, I think you know, you've got to be careful. You are reaching for yield when you go for this. You're attracted by that 10% yield. But we're much more careful and prudent uh, and worried about our capital, what the capital situation. We're worried about the principal. And I think the principal could go down, and you'll be getting that yield, but it won't make up for the losses you could have in the common stock. Now, if the Fed had done nothing, then we would have been looking at a full-blown recession by the end of the week. 
We dodge a major bullet today. On Mid Money Tonight, the collapse of SBB Financial has changed the face of this market. So how did it happen? And what repercussions could be in store for everything from the bank's customers to the economy as a whole? I'm digging into the situation to give you my take. Then, given these high-profile bank failures, what can we expect next when it comes to the long-term Treasury yields? Chartist Carly Garner's out with a very big contrarian call. You don't want to miss it. And Colin Frost has been hit with the rest of the regional banks. So what is the company seeing in the wake of the SBB's downfall? I'm getting the latest from the company's top brass. Stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Resourceful small business owners know how to get value from the purchases they already make for their businesses each month. The Enhanced American Express Business Gold Card is designed to take your business further. It's packed with benefits and features like four times membership rewards points that automatically adapt to your top two eligible spending categories every month on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. So you earn more where your business spends the most. Plus up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible business purchases at select shipping, food delivery, and retail subscription merchants. And with flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business and access to 24-7 support from a business card specialist, you can continue to run your business with confidence. The Amex Business Gold Card, now smarter and more flexible. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Enrollment required. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Last week's sudden collapse of SVB Financial, the parent company of Silicon Valley Bank, has changed everything in this market. We need to figure out exactly what happened here and what the repercussions will be for the SVB's customers for other banks, for the tech sector, for the Federal Reserve, and even the entire economy. But before we get into the weeds, I need to acknowledge that I really blew it with this one, because I absolutely did not see this coming. In fact, just over a month ago, we ran a segment on the 10 best year-to-date performers, the SP 500 at that time, with SVB making the list up 40% for the year at that point. Based on what we knew then, I was pretty positive, even recommended it. I regret getting this wrong. We made a mistake. And we own our mistakes when we have money. I'm not going to deflect. I'm not going to minimize. But I do think this could be a teachable moment because I was not alone in getting it wrong. In fact, nearly everybody got Silicon Valley Bank wrong. While it's not an excuse, I'm not using this one. As of last Wednesday, the day before the collapse began, 22 of the 23 analysts who followed SVB professionally had either buys or holds on it uh, with an average price target of $292. 
only Morgan Stanley's Manon Gossialia was negative, but even he had a $190 price target. These analysts were as blindsided as I was. So how did we all get it so wrong? Well, let me tell you. Let me give you a little story about this. Once upon a time, Silicon Valley Bank really did have an unbelievably great business and a terrific reputation. This company got its start as a normal regional bank in Silicon Valley. Thanks to its footprint in the land of innovation, SVB became the bank of choice for a huge chunk of the nation's startups, including their founders and top executives. In the end, they were doing anything and everything for these startups and their top guys, banking, wealth management, lending them money, using their non-publicly traded stocks as collateral, highly unusual, by the way. In more recent years, they made some moves expanding into research and investment banking, too, all in the same niche. And boy, they did get some great research people. Given SVB's relationship with tech startups, biotech firms, and their principles, there was little reason to think this strategy wouldn't be successful. And hey, for many years, it was incredibly successful. SVB's average total deposits grew from $20 billion in 2013 to $48 billion in 2018 to $186 billion last year. Their earnings per share soared, too, and their stock caught fire along with it because they were one in the same with the IPO market, skyrocketing from below 200 for most of 2017 to an all-time high of $763 right before the Fed declared war on inflation in November of 2021. Last year, naturally, SVB got poleaxed with its stock plummeting, went all the way back to below $200 by its its lows in early December. The Fed's aggressive rate hikes made their tech and biotech clients a lot less valuable. Uh, Higher rates made it much harder for startups to get funding, and the IPO market shut down. So the more mature ones couldn't become uh, public in order to raise more cash. But like the analysts who covered this thing, I assume that was baked into the stock price after it plunged from $763 to under $200. Still, why was I so optimistic that SVB could go higher when I talked about it over a little, I mean, a little over a month ago? Well, that's because it, it, things now don't look like it did back then. Things have changed a lot in the last six weeks. Remember how this year started? In January, we got a series of cooler inflation readings and weaker macro numbers, which led most of us to believe the Fed was winning its war on inflation and could soon stop raising interest rates really bullish for SVB. In fact, the consensus view at the time figured the Fed might even be cutting rates by the end of the year. Now, I never bought into that, but I did buy into the idea that things were cooling. If that more benign scenario had unfolded, the IPO market would have opened up again and SVB wouldn't have been hurt. Well, maybe they'd be just fine. After all, they've been in this business for 40 years. I figured they knew what they were doing. I was lulled. Of course, all of these assumptions turned out to be wrong. First, not long after our ill-fated commentary on SVB, the economic situation turned on its head. We got stronger numbers and inflation started heating up again with a much higher than expected consumer price index number on February 14th. We get one again tomorrow. We quickly realized that the Fed's war against inflation was far from over, something Fed Chief Jay Powell confirmed last Tuesday when he made some very hawkish comments on Capitol Hill. It's no coincidence that SVB imploded two days later. You need to understand, Silicon Valley Bank had not one but two problems, and neither of them were actually readily apparent until they smacked us in the face last week. First, their deposit base was way too concentrated among venture capital firms, they all talked to each other, and their portfolio companies. Second, they took this money and made some very aggressive investments in government bonds, but still aggressive investments, uh, that went 
underwater because the Fed's rate hikes have crushed bond prices, particularly on what's known as the longer end. Normally, it's fine if your bonds are underwater. You just wait until maturity gets your principal back regardless. But when Silicon Valley Bank's venture capital depositors almost in unison seemed to demand their money back overnight, the bank was forced to sell some of their bond portfolio, and it was at a huge loss. In the banking business, you need both a steady source of capital from your deposit base and a stable bond portfolio. Silicon Valley Bank had neither a real bad mismatch that had somehow been blessed by the regulators. So all of a sudden, SVB needed capital badly, but they couldn't raise it, even as the deposit outflows were coming fast and furious. In response, the regulators seized the bank and closed it, wiping out the common stock. Better late than never, I guess. So that's what happened when, when we talked about SVB positively in early February. We were giving our best opinion on the, way, on the story with the public information that we had at the time, information, again, blessed by regulators. Shortly after, though, the macroeconomic situation changed. I wish I'd circled back from this one and told you to forget about it. But, man, none of the sell-side analysts got this one right either because SVB really wasn't all that forthcoming about the level of risk they were taking. We only learned how reckless the firm was with its investment portfolio last week. They were running their money in a way that made them insanely vulnerable to losses in the event of a quick exodus of deposits. We were too cursory with the story, in part because we were actually doing a screen of the top 10 stocks of 2023 year to date and chose to rely on public documents and had been vetted, which had been vetted by regulators for our work. Not an excuse, but an explanation. We should have gone deeper than that because we're increasingly learning that while the regulators are very strict with systematically important financial firms, they're apparently a lot more lenient with banks dubbed non-systematically important banks like SVB. So here's the bottom line. So many of us got Silicon Valley Bank wrong because we relied on the regulators who were wrong. It doesn't matter. We need to be better than they are. And we weren't. I wish I'd been more pressured with this one. But when I get it wrong, I always own it. I got SVB wrong. And I can only pledge to do better going forward. Their money's back there to the break. Coming up, Kramer goes off the charts with a cure for the market's daily blues, next. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. This is a crazy market where we've already seen multiple banks go under. First Silvergate, then Silicon Valley Bank, and now Signature Bank. But those are more crypto-oriented. Yet stocks actually were higher for most of the day for a weak close because bank failures make it less likely that the Federal Reserve will keep ruthlessly raising interest rates. 
Just look at the benchmark 10-year Treasury. The yield's down 0.15% today. Remember, stocks have been joined at the hip of longer-term Treasuries for months. When that 10-year yield goes down, the market tends to soar. But of course, this is a tough moment where we don't have much insight in the future, except that the regulators seem willing to guarantee deposits above the typical $250,000 cap covered by the FDIC. So that's why tonight I want to take a step back, approach the situation from a more quantitative angle. Yep, we're going off the charts with the help of Carly Garner. She's a brilliant technician who's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading, the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading, to get us a better read on long-term interest rates, the ones that are set by the actual bond market. Now, since the beginning of February, the bond market's been the stock market's nemesis, right? Much like we saw most of last year. Long-term Treasury yields keep surging, in part because they they seem way too low versus short-term yields that are more closely tied to the Fed. After the last week, the benchmark 10-year, it's back to where it was over a month ago, because these bank failures have really changed the equation. Here's how Garner sees the situation. There's a saying among commodity traders, the cure for high prices is high prices, meaning eventually buyers and sellers adjust their behavior, causing prices to cool back down. She thinks that mantra can also apply to treasuries, especially in a world where investors have a lot of money on the sidelines, and you know they do. In her view, the cure for high yields is ultimately, well, high yields. Eventually, they get too high, and this situation reverses itself like we're seeing right now. Garner points out that according to the bullish sentiment index most recent numbers, only 30% of market insiders they polled were bullish on the 30-year bond futures, with a mere 26% bullish on the 10-year. In other words, Wall Street was incredibly negative. Remember, as bond prices go lower, their yields go higher. So people are overwhelmingly betting on higher long-term Treasury yields. Now, you can see the same thing in this chart of the 10-year Treasury note, which includes the CFTC's most recent Commitment of Traders Report, or COT Report, at the bottom. This data is a little behind for a variety of reasons. What we're seeing reflects the situation about three weeks ago. But look at this green line. That shows the net long or short position of large speculators, meaning professional money managers. Now, three weeks ago, these money managers were net short by about half a million futures contracts. That's down from a recent high of 585,000 futures contracts. This is the second largest net short position, short position, bet against, held by the group since late 2018, the last time the Federal Reserve ruthlessly raised interest rates. So what did happen in 2018? Don't go back in the Wayback Machine here. When bond traders got this negative, it told you the Fed was about to pivot and actually declare victory in the fight against inflation. Sure enough, J-PAL quickly changed course, and the 10-year spent the next two years roaring higher, sending its yield much higher. So in other words, the people who bet against it were very wrong right here. Garner thinks we're now looking at a similar situation where they're very wrong right here. And it looks like the moves already started thanks to that implosion of Silicon Valley Bank. Of course, that's not the only reason she sees longer-term treasuries headed higher. There's also a powerful correlation between the dollar and the 10-year. They tend to move in opposite directions 96% of the time. So now, check out the weekly chart of the dollar index, which measures the greenback against a basket of foreign currencies. We got a fabulous reprieve last fall when the dollar peaked. Remember I told you that was so important. Then it started moving higher again last month freaking everybody else, everybody else. It freaked me out. I thought the dollar was dead. However, as Garner sees it, the dollar index is now running into a powerful ceiling of resistance. 
And if our currency stops going higher, not only will that send Treasury yields lower, it could set up a rally in the broader stock market, along with most commodities. Remember that it really does help all the companies that do a huge amount of business overseas, including some that we mentioned at the top of the show. Now, take a look at the monthly chart of the 10-year Treasury note futures. In recent weeks, Garner points out that the 10-year briefly traded below it temporarily broke its line of support. That's a signal that something wasn't right, although she didn't know what that might be at the time. As it turns out, this was probably the liquidation or aggressive hedging from banks and funds that were actually blowing up. Again, take the Silicon Valley Bank situation. That's a lot of forced selling. But despite the chaos, the 10-year futures already recovered above that trend line by the end of the week. And now they're substantially higher. Last week, the thing yielded almost 4%. Now it's back to 3.5%. At this point, Garner wouldn't be surprised to see the 10-year future headed to 124.20, which would take the yield closer to 2%. Wow. Why, why that level? Because it marks the low end of the previous upturned channel, which existed for nearly two decades before Russia invaded Ukraine, causing food and energy inflation to explode, something that resulted in far more aggressive rate hikes from the Fed. But Plus, when you look at the relative strength index, which is down here, this is really interesting. Uh, Garner notes that the 10 years currently recovering from the most oversold reading in multiple decades. And the RSI is still pretty darn low. It's a long way from overbought territory, meaning longer term treasury prices could have a lot more upside which translates into lower interest rates. Yep, Garner's betting on a long-term rally in treasuries from these levels. What we've seen uh, right now, it could be just the beginning. Garner also points out that the commodity markets most impacted by Russia's invasion of Ukraine have now given back all their gains. Those are what set off a huge chunk of inflation worries in the first place. Now they're back to pre-war levels. What does that say about the future? Treasuries are still a long way away, though. In Garner's view, it's only a matter of time before Treasury yields come back down, too. Of course, to get a major downdraft in long-term interest rates, you need the Federal Reserve to change course. But the Fed can turn on a dime when things get tough. I simply don't see Jay continuing to relentlessly raise interest rates now that banks are starting to go under. Again, I'm living, give them some leeway. If the consumer price index tomorrow is hot, you can still see that 0.25, but then maybe it's a wait. Just two weeks ago, it would have been hard to believe that the 10-year yield would plummet from 4% to 3.5% practically overnight. But that's exactly what happened after SPV failed. Plus, with so many smaller banks potentially endangered, Garner wonders if we might be headed away from a cash-is-king mindset and into more of a cash-is-trash mindset. Boy, that'd be difficult, hard to believe, right? Even with the government providing backstops above and beyond the stated FDIC limits. If you're worried about banks going under, It's much safer to put your money in U.S. Treasuries, at least until we start freaking out about the debt ceiling crisis, although I don't expect that until early this summer. Bottom line, the charts as interpreted by Carly Garner suggest long-term Treasury yields might be headed a lot lower, which would be a tremendous boon to the stock market. Oh, man, that's a gigantically contrarian call. But if she's right, it would be incredibly bullish, and I sure hope she is right. Let's take phone calls. Let's start with Richard in Virginia. Richard. Hi, Jim. Um, Hi, Richard. I had a question. I had a question about the uh, raising the debt limit. And if Congress sure. fails to raise the debt limit, this could cause damage to the economy, even though it's temporary. 
I was wondering, are there any trading opportunities in the stock or bond market that might be created, and how would you exploit them, like putting yourself back if you were uh, running your old uh, hedge fund? Sure, sure. Well, I'll tell you, Richard, the problem is it's still pretty far from now. Um, But I will tell you, it would be disastrous. Uh, And I've said that in all my books, that whenever you get this, it is disastrous. We have to take it closer, though. It's still too far, given all we're seeing right now in the banks, to give you a good idea for that. But I thank you for the inquiry. Okay, tonight's charter suggests that long-term Treasury yields might be headed a lot lower. Very contrarian. That'd be a tremendous boon to the stock market. Much more mad money at, including my sleuth Colin Frost. That's a regional bank, and we know they're continuing to struggle in this tape. So what's fear-driven selling and what's legitimate selling? I'm going to the bottom of the story with the company CEO. And it's important to understand how a story like a major bank failure gets reported. It's not of pulling back the curtain and letting you in on the process that's really seen on the camera. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Now that Silvergate Capital, SBB Financial, and Signature Bank have gone under, wow, one after another, the original bank stocks seem to be guilty until proven innocent. Even after the Fed's intervention this weekend prevented another wave of bank failures, there's still a ton of value destruction in this group. Really hurt the tape today. Many of these stocks deserve to get hit, but some of them don't. So right now, we're getting a buying opportunity in some of the safer, higher-quality regional banks, assuming you can find them. I think there'll be more pain before even the good ones find a bottom. So no need to be a hero here and buy them immediately. But it's certainly worth trying to get one on your radar screen. Which brings me to Colin Frost Bankers. That's the Texan Regional Bank. That's the number one player in San Antonio and Corpus Christi. This is an institution that's been around for 155 years and weathered every storm to date. Just over four months ago, Colin Frost was trading an all-time high of $160 and change. As energy prices came down from the peak, this stock tumbled to 130. Remember, it is a Texas bank. Lots of exposure to the oil industry. Now, though, with this regional bank panic, the stock's plunged $103. That's down more than 12% today alone. So do we need to remain cautious here, or is Colin Frost one of those proverbial babies that are being thrown out with the bathwater? Let's go straight to the source with Phil Green, the chairman and CEO of Colin Frost Bankers. Get a better read. Mr. Green, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, Jim. Good to see you. Good okay, so Phil... Could, we, could you give us your perspective? I mean, until last week, we hardly ever talked about whether they're sticky deposits or concentrated deposits held to maturity versus uh, available for sale. What, 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 what's happened here? Well, Jim, I, first of all, I, some tragedies have happened, and I feel sad for some of the affected people, whether it's the shareholders, employees, or customers of some of these banks. And I think that it really has uh, that these cracks that we've seen in the system that primarily to this point have been around specialized banks with some specialized business model is that it's really showing that the value of a financial institution, particularly a bank, is in its deposit base. It's not in the value of its assets. Anybody can buy assets. It's in the value and the quality of its deposit base because that really shows the quality of the relationships that it has. And so we've seen um, some dislocation there, but I think that certainly Frost Bank's deposit banks base has been extremely strong. I think the community bank model uh, deposit base is very strong and it's got very much um, that way on Main Street. So that's what I think we're, we're seeing. And there's some 
concern in the marketplace, but I think that uh, the Fed's done a nice job of how it's handled the uh, two situations or three situations so far, and I think it was good that it's going to be fine for the uh, for the banking industry. Okay, so uh, Mr. Green, we've seen some banks that the concentrated deposit, as you mentioned, and the analysis you gave us, terrific. They really had some very big outflows in the last ten days. I imagine Colin Frost with a very diversified group of sticky assets, people building it forever, have not experienced that kind of outflow. You're right, Jim. It's been very stable, and uh, we've seen really no unusual activity today as we've looked at our flows. Now, I also looked at your uh, balance sheet. Where you are, what you've invested in, is far more conservative. It seems like that you didn't try to reach for yield 20, 30 uh, year uh, government paper, you you are much shorter and, and therefore much more conservative, correct? Well, yeah, I think we have been. We want to make sure we don't get out to the yield curve too much. But I think one thing that we really are focused on is, you know, I have uh, I've learned being at this organization, as you said, it's been around 155 years and all the things we've gone through. Uh, you know, a central lesson that we've all learned is that the only liquidity you have in a crisis is the liquidity you bring to the crisis. And that's true whether or not it was in the Great Depression when stories around here were that uh, Joe Frost put the monies on the table, said, come get it if you want it. But in this case, I think he said, don't come back. We would say that. Uh, You've also got the Texas Depression that we went through where there was this giant red line drawn around Texas. And really, you found that the only liquidity and capital coming in to that line, that there really wasn't any, and the only liquidity and capital that you had was what you had in your balance sheet. So those are the lessons we've learned. Same thing, the great financial crisis. And when you go to this particular crisis, I can remember back in August of 2020, we made the decision to stop buying investments because we really didn't feel there was any conviction in the market. We didn't know what the, if, was a real price discovery. The Fed was buying everything. We didn't know what real price should be. We didn't think there was a lot of conviction in, on a positive note. So we said, we're just going to build cash. And we knew that that cost our shareholders money, but it also provided optionality to our shareholders that really is paying off today. And, you know, again, we've got only 37% of our deposit base lent out today. But really importantly, 20% of our deposit base is in a checking account at the Federal Reserve. Uh, were you surprised about what happened last week with these other banks? I was very much surprised. Um, I think based on the reaction, everyone's been. Well, um, when you obviously are very, because of your long history, acute, acutely understand these things. But I was surprised, frankly, that the bank examiners didn't flag some of these banks that put so much money out on the yield curve and had such a high concentration of just a few customers. You know, I think th- th- these cases will be studied for a long time, and I and I can't say that I know the details around all of them, but I think the industry has uh, has a good history of learning from mistakes, and I think they'll learn from this. Well, look, I, I am very grateful you came on, and I think one of the reasons is that you can't come on is because you don't look at all like some of the banks that are in trouble at all. But that's because you also survived so many other downturns. I want to thank you, Phil Green, CEO and Chairman of Cullen Frost Bankers, for coming on Mad Money. Thanks, Jim. Good to be here. Certainly. Mad Money's back in. Coming up, what's in your mind, Kramerica? Give us a call. The lightning round is storming the NYSE. Next. 
It is time. It's time for the lightning round. Quick cover. That's for our Rafco Florida. I'm going to say to you, but you're running a plan to sell. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. Christmas. Let's start with Chad in Iowa. Chad. Third time caller, huge fan. Hey, uh, Excellent. I was calling about, thank you. I was calling about Tesla. I have some stock in that, and I was wondering I if like I could Tesla. Buy I think it's a great long-term situation. Uh, uh, look, I'm never going to get bet against Elon Musk. When I went to that, last thing I just went to that rocket launch. That's it. I'm done. Can't bet against this guy. Let's go to Mark in Florida. Mark. Yeah, hi, Jim. I'm calling about Marvell Technology. Um, it seems like their data business uh has fallen off a cliff, and I want your opinion. Well, Should I let's buy be careful. Those? I mean, I think it's not, it's certainly not as strong as it was. We sold the stock for our charitable trust. We advised members of our club that it's not the right time right now. It will be, but that was not a good quarter. You're absolutely right. Let's go to Melissa in North Carolina. Melissa. Hi, Jim. My question is about Soundhound. They reported earnings really? on March 7th that topped expectations, and the outlook for the future was pretty positive. The stock's been steadily trending down since, even before the current market pressures. What am I missing with Soundhound? Well, I think that what happened is, is that uh, we did believe that somehow next year, well, the fiscal year coming up would be better. And instead, they kind of said it's going to be the same plus or minus. In this market, you can't do the same or plus or minus. You've got to explode the numbers, and they did not do that. Let's go to Rich in Nevada. Rich. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well, Rich. How about you? Well, I've done real well with you over the years. Uh, oh, thank you. Appreciate you. I have a question on Ford. I've heard rumors that they might be splitting their EV off. Is that true? No, I don't think they could do that. But I do think that you get almost 5% yield with a $12 stock. And yes, it's true. If we have a recession, you're not supposed to buy the auto companies. But I think they're catching on. I think we're beginning to see the day on the pickup market, not Musk. So it's not going to be a Musk or Ford. It's going to be Ford with Musk not there. And I like that. Let's go to Victor in Arizona. Victor. Greetings from sunny Arizona, Jim. Ah, you got the edge on me, partner. What's going on? I'm looking for a quality long-term investment that pays a good dividend and has some upside growth. What do you think of Devon Energy? Devon Energy, at this point, it is so low that I think that you're actually okay. Uh, they missed the quarter. They missed the quarter badly. I don't expect Rick Moncrief to do that again. Let's go to Bennett, North Carolina. Bennett. Hey, Jim, thanks for having me on. I'm interested in of Allied course. Financial. They're currently trading at half their book value per share, have an industry-leading PE for a bank of their size, and have a 5% dividend. How do you feel about them? I don't like any of the financial holding companies right now because they are in the crosshairs of all these short sellers and people who are so afraid of their shadows. And, that, oh, can we take one more? Let's take Oh, no, that is it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, amid the bank peril, Kramer is saying job well done. But to whom and for what? We reveal next. Booyah, Jim. I love you, man. I've been watching you from day one. Thank you for all the wonderful advice that you provide us. I'm learning so much watching your show. Watch your program every day. I love it. Always wanted to say booyah on your show. Thank you for being the greatest in the world. We consider you the money market maker, and we thank you for all you do. I love your show. I'm a long-time fan of your show, and we think it's the most entertaining program on TV. 
When we left here Friday, we had a sense that money was pouring out of the regional banks and they could be in big trouble. Not garden variety risk, but real systemic risk. Silicon Valley Bank, the 16th largest in the country, was closed midday Friday because of a run on the bank led by some very noisy venture capital firms, which were some of its main depositors. They made the situation untenable and the government did have to act. It would have been very easy for me to add fuel to the fire on Friday by saying the situation was more dire than anybody realized. That kind of negativity does tend to boost ratings. But I didn't want to make myself part of the story. More importantly, I trusted Jay Powell and his colleagues at the Federal Reserve that they would do the right thing over the weekend. Sure, the bank examiners failed to flag that many regional banks owned tons of bonds that were underwater, and some of those banks were hemorrhaging deposits. But I had total faith that Jay Powell had learned a great deal about what the Fed could do to solve this kind of crisis, especially because this crisis actually was tailor-made for why they created the Fed. Sure enough, at 6.15 p.m. last night, the Fed acted decisively, and it pretty much assured that no other large regional bank would go under if they played by the new rules and took advantage of Fed largesse. The initial reaction today was one of skepticism based, I think, some degree on ignorance. When you look deep at what the Fed said, basically giving all banks the ability to take care of their bond portfolio losses by borrowing against them as if they aren't underwater, it's a truly elegant solution, which buys time for any bank that's facing a similar situation to SVB, even as they were indeed an extreme outlier. Of course, these banks may have to do stock offerings to offset the losses on their bond portfolios. That's also a big reason for the decline. But the Fed doesn't care about protecting bank shareholders. It cares about protecting depositors. Now, this was not a moment like 2007. Instead, the Fed did what they were supposed to, the polar opposite of Ben Bernanke's Federal Reserve in the run-up to the financial crisis. I cheer past decision because I think it could save thousands of regional community banks that might otherwise just go on under purely uh, because of panic in reaction to the closing of some other banks that were way off the reservation. If the Fed hadn't acted, I think we would have seen many big bank runs today throughout the country. Specifically, people would have pulled their money from the regional banks and shifted it to the more heavily regulated majors, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, something that would have been absolutely uh, led to a tremendous consolidation in industry that's already way too consolidated. It's against our U.S. imperative. We let the big banks get too big as we squirmed our way out of the financial crisis, but there's no reason to let that happen a second time. Again, Powell's elegant solution eliminated the need to wire money from one bank to another, even as we know some scared people still did it anyway. Now, I'm not happy that we got in this situation because it was avoidable. Bank examiners could have demanded that these regional banks recognize their bond losses and raise capital. They could have warned them that they were taking on too much risk to make a little more money. It's truly ironic that the Fed's previous easy money policies brought a 250% increase in deposits in Silicon Valley Bank. They put that money to work in longer-term mortgage-backed bonds, not shorter-term securities, which is actually wrong to anyone who knows anything about the industry when the Fed is tightening like mad, even as they made sure to buy money-good government-sponsored paper. Silicon Valley Bank was then crushed when the Fed changed course, moving aggressively to push down longer-term bond prices. No, I think this SVB actually bought their bonds at generational lows in yields, worst time possible. That was the problem, along with SVB's non-retail deposit base, as they were pretty much hostage to a couple of huge venture capital firms that yelled fire in a crowded theater. Put them together, and it spelled the end of that bank. But Powell saw Silicon Valley Bank collapse. Then he acted quickly to make sure the situation wouldn't repeat itself at other firms. If he hadn't moved, many regionals would have gone under today, and we would definitely become a nation with just a handful of banks in about a month. I salute Powell as much as I dislike the rumor mongers who merged me, among others, and just urged to say that the public's in peril. Look out, sell everything. Powell got ahead of the curve. He recognized that the Federal Reserve was set up to prevent mass bank failures around the country when the banks themselves really didn't do anything harmful. And he did it all without risking the taxpayer 
Uh, at least not yet. Did he bail out the entire stock market? Of course not. But he was never trying to do that in the first place. That's not his job. Are some of those banks with stocks down huge in trouble? You bet they are. But it's good enough that Powell reduced a lot of systemic risk. So at least we could live to play again. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise to run it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. I'll see you tomorrow. Last call starts now. 